Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. It's a fifth. Uh, this is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle for people that make it and occasionally ourselves. Sometimes we're all of those things. Well, not the news cycle, but anyways. A uh, brief word of warning. Uh, this program may contain, in fact, it typically contains uh, nuanced and well-informed con- commentary and strong language, obscure pop culture references and spurious allegations. You've been warned. Uh, you will not be warmed again. This is dispatch number 44, start date January 31st, 2017. Uh, I am Camille Foster, do stuff over at a, a place called Freethink. I'm joined here in the studio, uh, as as usual, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moore. I, uh, nope. I just can't even. Nope. Uh, Mr. Moynihan has been dispatched or something. Uh, hopefully not actually dispatched, but dispatched somewhere, somewhere uh, by Vice tube. News. Um, but we, uh, we will have updates on his status at some point in the future. Um, but, but Matt, how the hell are you? I, you know, about the strong language. So, uh, <laughs> it came to my attention over the weekend uh-huh. when, um, reacting to, uh, Donald Trump's executive or- orders or commiserating with, uh, my French friends in Brooklyn, because I'm really trying to make this as attractive as possible to Trump supporters. So I was hanging out with my French upper middle class friends in Brooklyn about this. And I realized uh, there's quite a few people there who listen to this podcast with their seven year old kids. <laughs> we get some feedback on the language bit. It's like, why, why does Easy's dad <laughs> talk like that? So I don't, I don't really know how to, uh, preface this but just yeah there is strong language i mean they've, here. they've been warned darius darius just close your ears it's okay no it's well, not... they need to le- they need to learn as well all right they need to learn right. um and uh, and speaking of learning uh, we have a very learned gentleman joining us today uh it's is actually the guy who lived across the hall from me like just across the hall did you ever like even say anything to each other, or was it kind we, of this? We weird... did, we did eventually. We did right. eventually figure out um, uh, who who one another were and uh, the extent to which we had some sort of uh, kinship. Uh, and how he is... committed murder of a fellow NBA. Pl- oh no, I'm sorry, that was Jason Williams. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, um, but Kevin Williamson, uh, roving correspondent of National Reviews, uh, is joining us. We should have like an applause track. Kevin, how the hell are you, dude? <laughs> Hey, good to hear from you. Thank you for uh, for joining us. Where where on planet Earth are you? You are joining us by uh, via Skype today. I am in Houston, Texas, where they will soon be playing the Super Bowl, which means I need to get out of here before uh, the crowds start to arrive. But that's not that's not for a few more days, right? Right. I think it's Sunday. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know anything about that. I actually have not watched a single game of football like all year. You know, I actually I, I went to a football game this year for the first time. Oh yeah, in your life? Yeah, I went. Yeah, well, I mean, a professional football game for the first time in my life. I mean, I, used to, I played high school football and all that fun stuff. No, we went and saw the uh, Steelers play the Dolphins at Miami, and uh, I'm not really much of a fan of that sort of thing. But it was it was actually just tremendously fun. Really enjoyed it. Was it the beer drinking and uh, yelling that uh, you enjoyed the most, or actually watching uh, football in the field? I think it was really just more of the watching the game. We were um, we were in pretty good seats, so we weren't in the real surly part of the stadium. And also, you know, Miami, even even you know, in the fall, is is hot enough to stun people into submission. 
uh, for for a good part of the day. So it wasn't really too terribly out of control. It wasn't like you see, uh, you know, Green Bay games where there are guys running around with their shirts off, chugging gallons of beer and that sort of thing. It was a little more civilized than that. The L.A. Coliseum, which was the uh, home football uh, stadium when I was growing up, uh, there is no non-surly section of the Coliseum. I, I was going to make the, a similar observation. Yeah, I mean, my, just... In my experience, the, the good seats are where people are the drunkest. Yeah, um, but I also only sit in the good seats, so there's that, that that's true. as well. Uh, 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 but no, I've, I've nearly been assaulted at uh, at FedEx Field uh, going well, that's there because for a you're Redskins screaming game. about the Redskins. Well, because screaming of your own for racial the Cowboys, baggage. screaming for the Cowboys exactly. against the Redskins, America's team. Uh, forever. Yeah, see, see my, my standard for this thing is fairly high because, as, as you guys know, I was a newspaper editor in Philadelphia for a long time and went to a lot of uh, Flyers games because our company had a had seats at the Flyers. And they are the worst sports fans. On <laughs> um, you know, the people who literally assaulted Santa Claus. Yeah. And yeah, Philadelphia. You drive people off the ice and that sort of thing. So, you know, compared to that, Phileo. everything else seems pretty... Did you yeah, ever get the good. look, Kevin? Uh, I, I mean, just to derail the conversation before we talk about anything of substance, <laughs> but you are like seriously the top ten of kind of I don't want to say crank or asshole, but there's some there's some <laughs> mix in between that with your demeanor on Twitter. Like you just do not suffer fools at all on Twitter in a way that's incredibly enjoyable. And so what I'm wondering is, did you ever like cycle around to the other side with the Philadelphia sports fan and realize <laughs> that they are the true uh, moral actor, just kind of like Raymond <laughs> Burr was heroes. in the in, uh, rear a window? Yeah, I, 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 it's funny how people react to me on Twitter because I don't really think of myself as being all that harsh or anything. Um, Maybe it's I the mean, creepy I, fucking clown photo. Sorry, Darius, uh, of <laughs> that you post every day. Uh, I, but, don't know, I don't know anything about any clown Yeah, okay, pictures. yeah, sure. But um, what, what I am on Twitter, I think, is honest. And there are sometimes people who just aren't smart enough to have a conversation with. Well, that's I, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those. And, you know, so I, I don't really feel um, obliged to do so. And, yeah. and if someone says something stupid, I'll just say, well, that's just stupid. And let's stop talking now because there's no there's no point going on. The thing about Twitter is – and this – I'm really ill-suited to Twitter because the whole thing of Twitter is um, it's a performative emotional medium. So you go to Twitter to have – pleasurable episodes of outrage and that's what it's all about and uh, i don't really get that emotionally invested in in politics and i'm not someone who actually really enjoys uh doing that sort of thing i mean you know people who really like enjoy getting into heated arguments or really enjoy being upset about things being you know feeling like they've got a, a complaint with somebody i'm i'm the opposite sort of person you know, i am I'm not actually a member of the Republican Party, but I am I'm pretty much a Republican from 1963 who wants to sit at home in my slippers and read the newspaper and smoke a pipe and play golf. And uh, so all of this sort of stuff um, is really quite alien to me. I'm the world's least suited person to media in the social media age, and I will probably die penniless and obscure. Wow. I think we're done here. Uh, that is – jeez. <laughs> Jeez. Well, uh, I mean, we should we should note, though, I mean, the crankery does not end uh, on Twitter. I mean, you can you can be uh, a, a bit of a minch in, in your writing. Sometimes you at least have some pretty pointed minch. Uh, minch is a nice guy. Uh, minch, you're right. This is going to do a do a brother a solid. You're right. 
He's a, yeah. he's an, he's an, maybe, a, you know, cervically specific uh, writer. I, I would Did point you say out cervix. I said, a, I, I will say cervix later. Okay. Um, uh, a cervically specific writer. A cervically. I yes. will uh, point out as I have when I've had uh, Kevin on, uh, on Sirius XM on occasion, uh, he is the author of one of the best headlines of 2016, uh, which failed utterly to, in some <laughs> senses, deliver what it wanted to, but it's uh, Witless Ape Rides Escalator, <laughs> which is a reaction to Donald Trump's very first press conference in this campaign. And it's yeah. a really withering piece of writing. And he wrote about a thousand other pieces during this campaign about what a lousy human being and candidate uh, Donald Trump was. And he was definitely part of the... Uh, although I wouldn't say he was part of Never Trump, he just was Never Trump. I think is a better way of, of describing <laughs> it. Uh, so yeah, he could be, but it's not uh, over. It's not misanthropic. It's just kind of uh, specific. So so Kevin, I mean, it, this is this is the first time I am talking to you uh, since the election. I think it's been a little while. Um, we we, yeah, we did live across the hall from, for a while, but I I, I want to know uh, how you feel uh, about the situation that we we find ourselves in. Is it as bad as you thought? Uh, it would be at this point much worse um, or worse than you could have ever imagined. Um, about as bad as I thought. Um, you know, there there are two very distinct tracks in American life. There's government and politics and there's everything else. Mm. And every, everything else is in pretty good shape, I think. Uh, there's a lot of cool and interesting stuff going on in the economy, in the culture, in science, in the universities. All sorts of great stuff going on in America. I'm very optimistic about the state of our country. Um, government and politics, of course, is a goat rodeo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a mess. It was, you know, it was a mess before. And uh, it's it's not certainly getting any better, I don't think. Well, better in some ways. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I come down on, on this. Uh, my opinions about Trump haven't changed at all. I don't expect him to change at all. I think he's unfit for the office and a genuinely bad human being who probably doesn't actually know how a bill becomes a law. And uh, he needs some, you know, schoolhouse rock in his life to to get some basic civics. Um, that being said, uh, as a conservative, I expect to get some things out of him I like. I think Betsy DeVos was a great choice for Secretary of Education. She might do some good things. I think Rick Perry might do some useful things at Energy. I think he'll probably make at least one good Supreme Court pick uh, that I can certainly live with. Uh, just to uh, interrupt, he just made one. I don't know. Was it? Uh, Neil Gorsuch. We're, we're recording this on a, what is it, Tuesday is, night? Yeah, Tuesday night, the 31st of January. And I hope that I'm mispronouncing his last name. But as we speak, at this moment, in a live reality TV show like setting at the White House, Donald Trump has nominated Neil Gorsuch to replace the late Justice Antonin Scalia. You, you do realize you're not, you're not, in fact, breaking news. On the, uh, breaking news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this is, it's like been two weeks since that happened. <laughs> Whatever. Did you have the two leading candidates there and give one of them a tiara and uh, a <laughs> Because it looked like he was going to do it like, you know, the Miss Universe pageant where he wanted to have the runner up there so he could cry. Or uh, or whatever happens. A friendly so, path. you know, I, I think there may be some useful things in terms of regulatory reform, mm -hmm. um, some other stuff that I think will be good. And uh, but that being said, he could potentially still do lots of damage. I think that um, I don't have any great specific affection for the Republican Party, but it is the only available instrument for people who have political beliefs more or less like mine. I think he's probably going to do a lot of damage to that. Uh, already has done a lot of damage to it. And uh, one of the 
one of the dumb things about our politics right now, especially our, our, our presidential politics, is it's all culture war. Sure. All culture war. Stuff. Sure, it's culture sure. war 24-7. There's nothing else to it. And, of course, this is going to be just amped up to um, to the max for the next four years, which is going to be really boring and tedious and exhausting. Yeah. I'm, and, and I was reading uh, some of your recent stuff uh, earlier today, actually, and I, I read you regularly because I, I think you, you always have uh, really great stuff, um, a lot of wonderful wordplay, even where I disagree with you. Um, I, I enjoy it. Um, but there was something uh, you, you were talking about the, the resistance um, movement that has sprung up in response to Trump. And, and I know one of the things that has really stood out to me uh, sort of since the not since the conclusion of the, the election alone, but sort of all along the way um, is the extent to which people sort of find themselves like hyperventilating uh, and imagining all of the worst possible things uh, when they when they talk about Donald Trump and what he is likely to do and what actually motivates him and animates him. Um, and there, there was something you said about, uh, I believe, just the progressives who are anti-Trump and who are interested in trying to sort of use Trump to contaminate the rest of the conservative movement, the broader conservative movement. Uh, and, and you talked about how that was a project that was likely to fail. I mean, I, I, I wonder, like, what is your take on kind of the state of conservatism as a movement? And how do you mm. actually separate <laughs> conservatism writ large from just the the rank and file who did, in fact, choose this guy? Um, and folks who have, in fact, fallen in line and did go out and vote for him, despite the fact that he wasn't he wasn't uh, fit to hold the office, uh, as, as I believe you put it. Um, what, what do we what do we what is it that's going on there? And I, I certainly have a perspective, but I'm interested in yours. Yeah, well, a couple of things about that. Um, one is that there are there are conservatives and there are people who are conservative. And this is not quite the same thing. You know, the conservative movement as such, meaning activists, intellectuals, writers, people who read National Review, people who read Hayek and work at places like AEI and, and, and those sorts of things. Although Hayek, well, Hayek wrote something called Why I'm Not a Conservative. I'm not a conservative. So there's, yeah, so there's that. But go, uh, yeah, you're good. That. Sorry. But, um, but we but – we, Hayek may not have been a conservative, but American conservatives tend to be Hayek. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll take that. I'll accept that. Yeah. Answer. Well, the better ones anyway, certainly do. So, but we're, you know, we're relatively small and not really all that powerful. Um, if we had any sort of real influence in electoral politics, uh, Trump never would have been the Republican nominee in the first place. I mean, I can't think of a time when national review has taken as strong a stand against a presidential candidate as we did against Trump. Yeah. Now there, there have been times when we've declined to, um, support the Republican nominee, or we haven't supported a Republic or a nominee at all. Um, I guess in 68, we endorsed a primary challenge to Nixon. Uh, some guy who was running against him in uh, New Hampshire or something like that. It's because we thought Nixon was, was wandering off of the, uh, oh, and it wasn't 68, it must've been 72. We thought Nixon was wandering off the uh, reservation a little bit, but um, you know, we don't have the sort of influence in the Republican Party and electoral politics that that people imagine that we do. Now, there are some conservative organizations and media properties and things like that that are really good at raising money and really good at uh, at making money. National Review doesn't have to be one of those. We are no good at making money at all. Uh, we've been losing money since 1955. 
But um, that is a, that is a good uh, tagline for the yeah. mat for the masthead. Yeah, yes. yeah, going good. out of business since 1955. But um, we don't really have that sort of influence in a normal year. And one of the things that I think has been really underappreciated about this um, election is that politics in general has nothing like the influence and power of celebrity. Uh, celebrity is the most powerful force in American culture. Um, outside of just basic things like whether the economy is kind of performing. Sure. Uh, you know, if there's an economic meltdown, people will notice it. But other than that, when there's sort of normal economic activity, celebrity is the most powerful force in American culture. And uh, Donald Trump comes from that world, not the world of politics. And one thing he's really good at is being a celebrity and using celebrity to get what he wants out of life. He's been doing this for a long time. It's the only thing he's actually really any good at. Um, this is a guy who couldn't make money running a casino. I mean, granted, I know a lot of people have lost money running casinos, sure. but um, I don't personally see how it's possible, but okay, I guess. Um, but this is a guy who managed to go bankrupt three times in Atlantic City uh, on the same property. He's not, you know, what you would call um, a great businessman outside of the world of celebrity and the things that go along with that, like product licensing, marketing, reality television shows, and those sorts of things. So the whole culture of politics, the whole electoral apparatus and the advocacy organizations and publications on both sides and ones that aren't on any side, you know, conservative, liberal, libertarian, whatever, are in terms of their influence and their reach and their real power, maybe one half of 1% of what celebrity culture is in the United States. Um, that is something that it's, 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 uh, it's Godzilla versus Bambi. Yeah, no, I'd say, I'd say that, I'd say that's about right. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I started there because, you know, this, this past couple of days, um, we have had no end of conversation about the recent executive orders uh, announced by the Trump administration uh, with respect to immigration, uh, specifically blocking the entry of people in entering the country from specific parts of the world, um, particularly Muslim people. Uh, if, if you listen to uh, certain descriptions of this policy, um, so from specific from various parts of the world being barred from entering the country either indefinitely or for months at a time. Uh, but the administration has gone ahead and taken this action. Uh, and there's been a hell of an uproar um, since then uh, and, and a lot of conversation uh, over the weekend. There were protests in airports around the country, even at JFK, uh, folks who uh, were. I guess Uber stopped running. Taxicab drivers were were participating in this protest. Um, and it's I thought I thought Uber was the one that was being criticized. Yeah, Uber was yeah. the scabs. There yeah, was, there was the hashtag delete Uber. Right, right, right. And, and the the taxi, the New York Taxi Cab Association, I guess, was was helping to per perpetrate this particular fraud. Um, in if order there's, to, if there's if there's anyone whose views I care about, it's the New, the New York, York Taxi Cab yeah. Association. <laughs> but um, I mean, there, I, are, I, there are very many groups of people in the United States I actively wish ill to. Apart from the New York cab drivers, apart from the New York cab drivers, man, they're the worst. But anyway, that's a whole other whole other subject. Yeah, but I, I wanted to to sort of chat about this, and I mean, one one thing that has really stood out to me, as I as I mentioned, is you know people's ability to to take situations like this um, and sort of imagine them as the worst possible things in the world. Um, this is, I think, a situation in which you actually have any number of important things going on. You have a ca candidate Trump who, when he was on the campaign trail talking about what he planned to do when he got into office, uh, was, pretty, was pretty candid initially um, in saying that he, Donald Trump, was 
going to institute, if he won the office, a complete and total shutdown on Muslims entering the country until we can figure this the hell out. I think that is a verbatim That's quote. pretty verbatim. That's yeah. pretty good. The hell out um, is what really sort of turns yeah, yeah, yeah. it. The, the legal ramifications of hell out mm-hmm. is, is really important for us to focus on. Um, granted, he has softened that. Uh, and, and as it happens, the executive order that was passed um, wasn't in that sort of language. It's the sort of thing that one can actually read and is intelligible. Um, but the reaction to the executive order. Intelligible is a strong word. Uh, I'm saying as <laughs> as compares to like the Affordable Care Act, right? Like you right, can't yeah, actually read a piece of in, legislation like that and understand the shitty what the English is at least plain shitty yeah. English. You can is. you can actually read an executive order and understand what it says. Yeah. I just got a text from Michael Moynihan. That is incredible. Um, what is, what's I don't, uh, only to? sorry, sorry. Uh, um, but at any rate, um, I, I could read I could read that I could find my way through it. Um, I thought there was a pretty sharp contrast between sort of the loudest voices screaming about this particular action by the Trump administration um, and what the document itself actually says, the various ways in which it's characterized. And one of the people that really stood out to me, uh, and I'll I'll perhaps end this this monologue here um, because I I am – building up to something, uh, was Fareed Zakaria on CNN, um, who I, I heard talking about this. I wanted to, to sort of play this audio for you guys, because I, while I am uh, an admitted, like, open borders lunatic anarcho-capitalist who thinks that people who want to come to this country should have the freedom of movement to be able to come here, if I want to have someone come from uh, Zimbabwe, like, that's my business and theirs, and you don't get to say anything about it. Um, that being said, like I can at least appreciate the best possible version of like the restrictionist argument, um, especially as it pertains to uh, a place that is in conflict where there are millions of refugees in desperately bad situations and really awful people there who are trying their best to take advantage of the system, come here to the United States and do bad things. The probability may be low, but that that is a thing that one can at least acknowledge. There perhaps ought to be some betting there. Um, but I, I did wonder about sort of the characterization uh, that that Fareed made, uh, and I wanted to, to play the audio for you guys and, and just sort of get your get your take. Donald Trump's executive order suspending the entry of Syrian refugees and of anyone from seven Muslim countries is filled with requests for reports and information. The Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, are asked to provide information on the numbers of foreign terrorists and then to issue progress reports on the policy with more data within one and three months. So let me save the government some money and offer the data right now. Alex Nauraste of the Cato Institute, a conservative think tank, has tallied the number of Americans killed by citizens of the seven countries banned from 1975 to 2015. They are as follows. From Iraq, zero. From Iran, zero. From Syria, zero. From Yemen, zero. From Libya, zero. From Somalia, zero. And from Sudan, you guessed it, zero. Incidentally, that number from Saudi Arabia is 2,000. 369. From the UAE is 314. From Egypt is 162, according to Cato. Why certain countries are on or off this list is truly mysterious. Some newspapers have noted correctly that none of the Muslim-majority countries that have a Trump hotel, building, or office are on the list. 
More broadly, Cato's Naraste points out that including 9-11, the chance of an American being killed by foreign terrorists on U.S. soil over that 41-year period is one in 3.6 million per year. Being killed by a refugee, your chances are one in 3.64 billion per year. So there's really no rational basis for this policy. What explains it then? I suppose it's what has explained so much of Donald Trump's political career, the exploitation of fear. All right, you guys get where, where this is going. There um, are good arguments against this, and they, hopefully we'll get into them. There, there are. There are. Um, there are. And I, and I want to. And, and I want and, to. And but here's the, but I, here's the thing. But, you know but, what? I, but I'm giving this to you for, for a reason. And it's because, um, in, and Kevin, I actually, uh, you know, in reading, in reading his work, I've seen the, the phrase whataboutism pop up in his work. And, and here on our podcast, uh, we've talked about whataboutism in the past. And, you know, I have been, in some cases, criticized uh, for pointing out uh, that both sides traffic in fear-mongering and that it is routinely the case that while Donald Trump is awful and deplorable in any number of important ways, I have sort of a broader existential angst about our politics and governance in general and the, the, the degree to which it is not held accountable for the terrible things that it does. Um, holding up Donald Trump as the personification of evil the way Fareed Zakaria does when he gets into this really sloppy and just deplorable phony journalism of saying stupid shit like, um, <laughs> well, did you notice that none of those places have a Trump tower? Is that really what you think is going on here? Is that the sort of sloppy it's intellectual not. shortcut that you are going to take? You it's toddler. Not. It's but not. this is but this is like seen as serious journalism. I have seen I any care. number of thoughtful people. Here's the thing. Passing I don't, I don't care. What it bothers me. I don't care. To any significant degree, what Fareed Zakaria either says or uh, cuts and pastes from someone else saying uh, previously. <laughs> I, I, I knew that was coming. You see, I didn't go there. I honestly, uh, I honestly don't care. Um, when, so imagine you're at a moment, and power is doing something at the moment. There is an intellectual habit, and I've seen a lot of this on the right, including some of Kevin's colleagues, not Kevin himself. Um, uh, who immediately want to go to if if the people who are opposing power are on their opposite political team tribe the instinct is to go to my god can you believe the hyperbole that they're using against the exercise of power and it's interesting the hyperbole is real the struggle is real and the media bias is can be very overwhelming, and we're going to be and, in, in the hypocrisy. In at least in the hypocrisy too, we're going to be in four years swimming in hypocrisy and media bias. And my God, there was not going to be any shortage of fucking Federalist.com articles talking about how the media has blown all of its credibility <laughs> once again. How many times you can write that, Sean Davis? Really? Because <laughs> we haven't read it enough. Can you write it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day? At some point. I think the, I have an intern or someone whose job is to write that article. <laughs> it should be. At some point, the federal government is exercising power. Can we get a reaction to that? Because that's the thing in front of us here. Yes, the media and hyperbole and lefties and hippies and protesters, yes. And you can also 
go to a Tea Party rally in 2009 and find someone talking nonsense. Yeah. It was very possible. That was also a very happy media thing to do back then. And at that moment, at that time, I pointed out that those people didn't have the power either. We can we can critique and we should and we should challenge ideas to make them better but let's not lose sight of the exercise of power here which is not happening with Farid's fucking Zakaria it's happening with Donald Trump let me just say a kind word or two at least about the um, media bias story that gets written every day or the hypocrisy story that gets written every day I know it gets tiresome no one likes to hear it uh, no one likes to be the guy that has to write that story. That's how you get started in conservative journalism, right? It's like it's the low man. <laughs> on the totem true. pole job is, is you write that story. I think and Malcolm, I that. Uh, as a point of fact, Malcolm Gladwell, did he not get his start in journalism writing that story? Like he was writing for conservative shops in the uh, in the 80s uh, doing that kind yeah. of counter-programming stuff. Go ahead, Kevin. But, you know, sometimes the, the hypocrisy does need to be, I think, <laughs> remarked upon, if only to keep things in context. So the worst of what Donald Trump is accused of doing is abusing executive power, although I don't actually think he's – well, I think he actually is legally empowered to do what he's doing. Yeah, I want to come back to that for sure. For the most part. But to unfairly inconvenience people who want to travel here from foreign countries who are citizens of other countries um, and to unfairly – cut off an avenue of escape for Syrian refugees and other people in foreign countries who are in, in terrible situations. That's the worst he's accused of. The Obama administration assassinated American citizens. It went to the New York Times and bragged about assassinating American citizens. It compiled a hit list of American citizens and talked about it to the New York Times and said, we're going to kill these people. And then it did. Then it went and killed the guy's 16-year-old son. And a couple of days ago, I guess we just killed the same guy's daughter, right? A little girl of eight or nine years old, something like this. And if I can interject, Kevin, to to bolster your point, uh, according to, I believe, John Ward on Twitter, and I don't know if this is backed up, but he said that there were three questions about the eight-year-old sister being killed at today's White House press gaggle, Mm -hmm. and that there had been zero questions throughout the entire Obama administration from the press corps, from the White House press corps, which, if true, is just phenomenal. That is incredible. Yeah. So who actually who actually made a stink about this? There there was me. There was a couple guys over at Reason, I guess. There's Glenn Greenwald, and uh, who else? Were there any shutdowns at JFK or national hysteria or anything like that? Well, no, there wasn't. So we we only care about indefinite detentions. If people are getting dead, that's okay. Because they're they're not here anymore. The, the, the so point here, though, isn't just to say, you know, neener, neener, look at you stupid Democrats, you do it too. I mean, as, as much fun as that is to do, I, I love doing that as much as anybody else. That's not actually the point. The point is that these powers get expanded and these precedents get established uh, during periods where you don't have controversial figures like Trump in there, when you've got a relatively – well-liked and well-accepted guy like Barack Obama without anyone ever thinking, hey, our guy's not always going to be there forever if you're a Democrat or you're on the left, or without anybody ever thinking, hey, we won't necessarily always have responsible people in government. We all haven't always had responsible people in government. We've had crazy people in Congress. We've had a couple of crazy presidents. What do we do when we're establishing these powers and these precedents? And we just don't talk about it. We don't worry about it. Uh, For the same reason, we never really talk about things like financial scandals, because it's too hard to explain to people. We all know about Clinton's sex scandals, but try to explain cattle futures to somebody. They'll just look at you like, you know, you're you've got three heads. 
And uh, so you've got a couple of people out there by themselves saying years ago, hey, guess what? Even though this lucky guy is a rotten, dirty SOB, and yes, we'd like to bring him home, charge him with some crimes, and have him shot, you cannot actually send out an order to assassinate an American citizen because he is, and this is my favorite quote of the entire Obama administration, the Osama bin Laden of Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> did, did that happen yeah it's totally yes a thing. they called him he was the osama oh, that's totally a thing. MG. yeah yeah that's yeah great. no it's totally oh, that was thing. My, my, my favorite description of anybody pretty much in human history and uh, everyone just goes la 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 and it goes on and uh then when we point this out now we say hey guess what we've got this trump guy in there and you guys don't trust him you don't like him you don't think of him the way you thought of obama and then it's well you're just engaging in whataboutism they're just saying, well, it's this hypocrisy. It's a media bias story. It's blah, blah, blah. We've all talked about this before. Let's not talk about this anymore. And we never learn our lesson. Yeah, there, there are almost certainly some people who are doing that. I know for a fact that for me, like trying to compare and contrast and pointing out the hyperbole, uh, reminding people of the, uh, the Marley, Marley's razor, uh, Bob Marley's razor, which is to say, um, that he who hath shot the sheriff hath not necessarily shot the deputy, even if he's admitted it. This is this is Bob Marley's Dan Marley's razor. No, 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 Bob Marley. Bob Marley's razor. But this is this is an important rule. It was not a year ago that we had people on the left cheering, putting travel restrictions on people, on American citizens, uh, with the no-fly list and taking away their right to buy guns and that sort of thing, and saying, "Well, if you don't support the president, unless you must be in favor of terrorism." Uh, you know, so we don't have anything like a, um, let's say a consistent ethic for evaluating these situations. True. So, um, so maybe we, so, but, I was going to ask Matt, cause yeah. you wrote about this, if, yeah. like if we dug into like this particular policy, because there are competing perspectives and we can perhaps talk about some of those perspectives, but you, uh, wrote something over at reason, um, sort of diving into the detail, uh, about the Trump, um, immigration, um, policy, the executive order here. Um, it's, I always want to use the word law, um, but this is not, in fact, a law. This is not legislation that is being passed. These are executive orders. Um, perhaps we could talk about sort of the specifics here and the extent to which this is a, a deviation from the mean um, historically. So it is. It's a bigger deviation from the mean than those uh, who are saying that it's, it's a semi-continuation. What we're doing, which we haven't done in the last 40, whatever years it's been, 42 years, the modern era of refugee resettlement in the United States, um, we are shut down for business. There is no refugee in the world who is eligible to come here for the next four months. We're closed until Memorial Day. That's a pretty draconian step. There are a lot of people who went through every single legal process. They got in line as – as uh, as uh, our friends uh, over at the Center for Immigration Studies uh, want them to do. Um, They got in line and they got on an airplane on one legal condition and then arrived and there was another one uh, imposed on them. Some of them were sent back, sometimes in precarious situations. But so they just shut that down for four. It's a four-month timeout and it's uh, it's temporary, uh, but uh, we've already seen uh, some uh, uh, reporting today from the L.A. Times that uh, some of the countries uh, might not be coming back online after the uh, four months. So that's a pretty draconian step. That's something that has not been taken before. A lot of people are making lazy, um, I think, uh, conflations with what Barack Obama did with the Iraq refugee program. Right. This was in 2011. Uh, in 2011. Um, that was a slowdown. There were still people coming in every month. Um, uh, he tightened up the refugee restrictions. In addition to the, the 120-day window of all refugees, and again, it doesn't 
doesn't matter, Christian, Muslim, whatever, um, uh, under whatever circumstances, there is the seven-country ban. And that's this uh, 90 days, not 120. And that's not just refugees. It's the much broader subset of all humans who don't have diplomatic passports from these seven countries. You referenced uh, before how, uh, or Kevin did maybe, of uh, how in, in 2015, late 2015, after the San Bernardino shooting, in the one bill a year that Congress passes, which is the the big cromnibus at the end of the year, mm-hmm. uh, they crammed in a thing um, having to do with those seven countries. It's not the same as barring every human being, with the exception of diplomats, from coming into the country. What they did then, and there were, it was a overwhelming majority, both houses of Congress, 400 and something to not much. Um, and Barack Obama happily signed it into law. What they did is they said, if you are a member of those seven, I think it's all seven. It might be five of the seven. I think uh, it's all, all seven. I are think in it's there. all seven. All seven are um, in there. They so said, no, no, Fareed Zakaria has no reason to be confused. That is that is why it's those seven and not another seven. Correct. It has it nothing to do with document. Trump's business practices. And that is That's really right. the stupidest. Uh, a critique you could possibly make and just takes you down a stupid path. Some 16-year-old wrote that for him, but it's yeah, still Yeah, and it's being passed around a lot. Uh, no, so it's these seven countries, and these are countries that are war-torn, messed up, uh-huh. have a lot of problems, and probably all of them need to have their refugee systems looked at uh, diligently in terms of coming to these states. So may, may all be places where we've drone striked in, in recent uh, years. Most of them. I, I think not quite all. <laughs> uh, most of them. So back then, what they did is said, if you are a dual national... Of that country and one of the 38 countries with whom we have a visa waiver agreement. So most of Western Europe and uh, and friendly countries in, in Asia and in, in the Anglosphere. If you were born in Iran and moved to France and are a dual national, you no longer have access to the visa waiver program. The visa waiver program says you can come in this country anytime you want for 90 days, just like we can go in those 38 countries. So what they're saying, what they said at the end of 2015 is if you are a dual national from those countries, you have to actually apply for the visa. And so they apply, and for the most part, they get it, as far as I know. I don't know what the stats are. Yeah. So that's different than saying, oh, you're born— you, Nobody gets to come here. You don't there. get to come here. And yeah. As a matter of fact, now the new rule is, and this is indefinite, and again, uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, Kelly said just today that uh, some of these 90-day countries, of uh, the seven countries, they're going to be extended right. indefinitely in the future— well, to the extent the power, the president does, in fact, have the power to limit them coming. I mean, he why not be able to continually limit them coming in 30, 60, 90 day immigrants? Sure. Uh, in, in intervals. I increments. do not. I do not believe, uh, generally speaking, when a government official says a restriction is temporary. Uh, I learned this from, I'm sure Kevin has horror stories from Philadelphia, but in Los Angeles, <laughs> there was always a temporary moratorium on how you can like build a chicken coop in your backyard or how you can do X with your property. And they always were temporary for one year and then became permanent soon after. Some of these things I think will last a lot longer. Sure. And this is pretty draconian. There are a lot of Iranian Americans. There's 1.5 million or so, many of whom I mean, they've been assimilated since the 80s. They are anti-Mullahs. They are. They have tended to be, at least until recent years, pretty solid Republicans. I was talking to our friend um, uh, 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 Pejman, and I probably just mangled his name, but I was talking to him earlier today. Guy has self-identified as a conservative Republican since 1984 until last year because of Trump's politics on this. Mm-hmm. He was talking, his voice cracking with emotion, saying, I can't believe you're treating our people like this right now. And this is this is the green card um, 
interpretation of this, which the Trump administration was insisting on from uh, Friday over right. the objections to the Department of Homeland Security and then walked it back on yeah, Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Um, but still, they're, they're all going to know people who know people who are going to be affected by this. It's a draconian thing. So there isn't. Have you guys, um, have you guys read the actual uh, relevant statute here? The underlying statute underneath the executive order? Yeah, 1182F. No. Federal nope. Edumacators. It's, it, well, it's really pretty interesting because I didn't, I didn't know about this until my colleague Andrew McCarthy uh, brought it up. It really does invest the president with amazing uh, sweeping plenitentiary powers uh, on this. So I'll read you real quick the relevant section. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate. Why is it got to be a he, man? This is just <laughs> patriarchy. When's it going to stop, Kevin? Yeah, never. Uh, never. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think I, I'm not persuaded by the argument and I'm open to being convinced and I uh, honestly haven't been dealing with it uh, that this is uh, un, uh, unconstitutional. Right. The Congress has has given the president like it does with everything having to do with national security. It is handed the president, please exercise this power and don't yeah. hurt us uh, on this. And I mean, they singled out these seven countries. That's why they were chosen. Um, so I think the president does indeed have a lot of latitude for me. And like Rand Paul was asked about this yesterday and he said, yeah, there's no constitutional right for you to come into this country. If you're a refugee from another country, totally true. Great. But that not every single question rests just on that yes, up or down coin toss. It's it also is, not how the Constitution works. Is it like <laughs> is it the right thing to do? Is it not the right thing to do? Yeah. Um, and I think uh, th- that question uh, for me, uh, where it boils down to into not being the, the right thing to do, is listening to uh, U.S. diplomatic personnel in Iraq uh, and also people who uh, we are, uh, who are collaborating with in Iraq. Maybe they're collaborating in ways that I don't personally love, but the the fight against ISIS, is, which Donald Trump has signed up for, mm-hmm. is happening in Iraq and pretty much everybody on the ground there, and that might be exaggerating, but only slightly. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, all no, the I reporting that I have seen on the ground has been, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. That's hurting this thing that you said that you wanted to do. No, look, this, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, look, there's it is important to note that whatever the actual sort of letter of letter of this executive order it it is certainly easier to call it a muslim ban than to give the kind of nuanced explanation of what is happening uh with this particular action uh that you just did matt so this is part of the reason it happens but a big part of the reason why it happens is because of the way the president sold this he called it a muslim ban first <laughs> it's, well, it's, 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 it's it's his fault and it's a caricature and it's wrong Right. So, that, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please tell me, Kevin. The problem with that, and let me share my unpopular opinion that will get me kicked out of every libertarian organization I ever belonged to or have any really. You, you don't belong you. to one, so. I may vouch for you, so just, but, but please share. Well, is that in the long term, what they're really talking about really is a Muslim ban. And in the long term, restricting Muslim immigration to the United States is a better policy. Um, you know, we, we have this tremendous dishonesty about this conversation saying, well, it's not about Muslims. It's about people from Libya. It's about people from Iran. It's about people from Iraq. It's about refugees from Syria and how they might be infiltrated. 
I don't really think that's it at all. I think it's uh, an argument about the fact that the United States is not a country that has a large Muslim minority, and it's a country that doesn't want to develop a large Muslim minority. And I don't think that that's an unreasonable position. I think that there's a reason why you've got a lot more terrorism in Paris than you do in New York or in Washington, D.C., and it has to do with the characteristics of the population. Uh, the idea that having a large and often unhappy Muslim minority has security aspects attached to it would not be, I think, terribly controversial to politicians in Delhi or in Bangkok or in lots of other parts of the world. But we are, for various reasons, unwilling to have that conversation because it makes us uncomfortable and it, and it probably should make us uncomfortable. But I think at some point we should probably be honest about what the long-term intention here is, uh, which I think is to discourage uh, increasing immigration to the United States by Muslim people from the Middle East. So, I mean, the the the, the sane, reasonable response to that, uh, which is which is what you'll get here, um, is well. I understand the argument you're making, but isn't it the case that the overwhelming majority of people who happen to be Muslim um, are not, in fact, a danger to anyone else? In oh, which, absolutely. In which case, um, in which case, working particularly hard to sort of contain this this subset of people um, is probably a mistake because any number of really good, virtuous people are not are not able to come into the country. Uh, and and I've, I've got another sort of philosophical argument that I wanted with to... The guilty, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is that the but best way to go actually, about it? I think it is, actually. I think it's a more prudent decision. Um, you know, people will talk about this particular conflict and say these spasms and paroxysms in the Islamic world, which don't, in the end, actually have a lot to do with the United States. Um, they have to do with... Arab nationalism and Sunni-Shia conflict and various other uh -huh. sorts of things. And, and all sorts we're, of underlying political um, situations. Right. And, and we're not super good at sorting that stuff out. Um, but we do have a tool at our disposal here, which we probably ought to use. And that is the fact that um, Islamic extremists need a relatively large minority population in which to work and recruit and hide and do their radicalization and all the rest of it. Um, even though you're talking about maybe a tiny, tiny little percentage of the population, and even though you're talking about putting the other large percent of the population in a terribly unfair and sometimes even inhumane situation where you're talking about the Syrian refugees, if the responsibility of the United States government is to the American people and not to people living in Syria and not to people in Pakistan, which I don't understand why it isn't on the list, or Saudi Arabia, which I understand why it isn't on the list as well. Well, I mean, you do know why it's not on the list, though. Effectively, you know why in, in, in practice. Saudi Arabia, I understand. Pakistan, yeah. I said. The, the totalitarian countries with whom we have good relationships, uh, who, who do things for us, uh, we do not judge them particularly harshly or do bad things to them or, or tell them that they're bad actors publicly and embarrass them. And that might have been true of Pakistan in the 1980s. It hasn't really been true of Pakistan in a long time, I don't think. Um, we do actually have, crude as the policy tool is, a way to prevent that sort of situation from evolving the United States, which is simply to limit uh, ruthlessly immigration from that part of the world. I don't think it's a bad policy. I don't think it's an unreasonable policy to take, even taking into account the the horrifying consequences it's going to have for a lot of people around the world who don't deserve it. I just think that we are different than France and Germany and England, and they 
are even better than some of the other countries in Europe when it comes to assimilation. I have an optimistic faith in the assimilation machine of the United States, even in the face of uh, what I think uh, some people don't want to acknowledge is a concentration of terrorism and threat coming from radical Islam in this country and all over the Western world. I don't look at Paris and see America. Um, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time in France, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, and it is it's it's very sad uh, what has come there. I don't worry about that happening here to anything like the same degree. I think the people who come here have a much different journey of getting here. And I think uh, one of the things that irritates me about the execution of this, uh, the selling of it, the campaigning on it. It has been based on, I think, uh, a few misnomers. One is that the refugee crisis in Europe is the, is is an analogous to the refugee crisis here, or not the refugee crisis, the refugee yeah, there isn't, isn't really one <laughs> here. Uh, there, it's a, yeah. The the crisis is that we haven't had any refugees for the most part until I mean, last year was the first year we had anything like any significant number of refugees from Syria, and and that was after like consistent years of like ten, five, a dozen, right. twenty. Um, under the Obama administration, it's harder to get here. You had to cross. You have to cross an ocean. You actually have to go through the screening process. Donald Trump campaigned as if there wasn't a screening process, as if vetting what we don't know who these people are. He said over and over and over again, um, it's pretty hard to get in this country as a refugee from Syria when we don't know who you are, because we have some discretion there. You got to go in line, and part of that line, <laughs> you're not prioritized if you don't have papers. Uh, that's uh, we have a, a much bigger ability. To to pick and choose. Now, FBI Director Comey and some other people in Homeland Security uh, have given presentations to Congress in which they said they're not satisfied with how stringent that is. And I respect that. Uh, uh, Justin Amash, in an interview with me a year ago, and he's someone who's been very, very critical of this recent uh, uh, executive order, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's a son of a Palestinian refugee to the United States and a Syrian uh, immigrant. He thinks that that needs to be shored up a great deal. But to say that there's no the vetting, actual vetting process, the vetting process. Yeah, sure. Um, but to say that there's no vetting happening or that what's uh, eventually happening in the U.S. is uh, analogous to what's happening in Western Europe, I think is wrong. Uh, and basing policy on that fear, um, I think, is also wrong. I think that it will the gap between the United States and Western Europe is actually going to get smaller the more we base our fears on Western Europe happening here. It's this uh, the thing where I understand everybody's motivation in this game. Yeah, and I and and I uh, let's I'm setting aside Trump here because I don't want to think about him in general. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I understand the reaction of like, hey, we don't want terrorists in this country. That's a pretty normal uh, reaction. And sure. and I'm not persuaded. Just for the record. Of Alex, what's his face at Cato? And I don't say that disparagingly. I just uh, will massacre Nor- his last Nor-west? name. Is it Norwestern? I, I don't know. I like Alex, and I the, I, I know the one Alex. in three point yeah. four two million thing. It's kind of like oh, you, well, Alex, you're you're likely to die in a yeah, you know yeah. with your toaster in the bathtub well, more than the terrorism. Way, That's I don't find that a persuasive but this argument. Is, in his defense, actually, and and honestly, and this is another sort of thing that that happens frequently in in uh, sort of reporting. People will grab the statistic and they leave all of the caveats that are offered in the study behind because they don't need them. Alex admits, acknowledges that it is a very small 
population of people that they're actually doing these studies from. So if you talk about, well, yeah, there have been no attacks from people by, who are Syrian. Well, yeah, there was like no one let in. Well, like, yeah, no one, no one got to anyone, come here. And also they'll, they'll say uh, – sorry, uh, Kevin, uh, quickly, but they're also they'll, – they'll narrowly ta- tailor it. I uh-huh. mean generally speaking, refugees aren't attacking us. Right. But some are. And, and they'll na- narrowly tailor it to – and that's hard to say uh, – we of those seven countries that we have targeted, sure. no refugee has committed murderous terrorism on this soil. Okay, that's as far as I can tell, that's true. But there, if you expand the band a little bit, you'll get some violence. The world is violent. You're going to get some violence out there, and we should be trying to figure out how to limit specifically radical Islamic violence. But I think that the way that Trump has campaigned on it and talked about it and acted upon it has not been based at all in reality. And I think some of the more uh, other uh, uh, immigration-related measures that you're going to see them taking over the next couple of days, I have just saw some trial balloon immigration ideas about uh, kicking out immigrants, legal immigrants who have been taking too much welfare. Um, I think a lot of that is based on uh, the more uh, fever dreamish uh, 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 sense of the anti-immigration sentiment on the right, uh, rather than being based on the reality of the percentage of uh, people who are immigrants who are taking social welfare. Go ahead, Kevin. Sorry. Do we think the evidence shows that we've done a good job screening and assimilating the Somalis who came to the United States or a bad job? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I think the evidence I mean, shows that we've done a pretty bad job. They're largely unassimilated in places like Minneapolis, where you have a large population. Uh, my hometown, where I was born anyway, of Amarillo, Texas, uh, which has the largest per capita uh, refugee population in the country, uh, has a very large Somali population there that's entirely unassimilated, unincorporated in anything like mainstream society there. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, of course, had Somali-Americans showing up, various jihadist organizations overseas, those sorts of things. I think people look at that example and conclude that we don't actually necessarily do a very good job with this. And my my faith in the ability of American intelligence and law enforcement agencies to to vet uh, <laughs> refugees and such is, is, it is, low, is, Kevin? Really, is really quite limited. And here's why. <laughs> Because every other mass shooting attack we've had in this country, you know, in Orlando and others, you've had people who've been interviewed by the FBI three times. Yeah. Um, who have been, you know, suspects in various cases, things like that. These are not just you know, people who came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, these are people we had some good reason to be suspicious of. We did nothing um, because we're not really actually very good at doing that. We're not as efficient about these things as, say, the Swiss are. Or even even the Western Europeans, uh, the other Western Europeans, to to some extent. So I think that we should probably not be unduly optimistic about the efficacy of the American public sector when it comes to these things. It, I think that's I think that's a fair point, point. Um, and I think it's also you know fair to just point out that yes, I don't have a great deal of confidence in them either. Um, but they're also not really letting in many people uh, and simply haven't been uh, over the course of the last decade. Uh, so to the extent that there is a small trickle of people coming in from this part of the world, um, I am I am not terribly frightened. Um, it, it would be terribly inconsistent for me to, to, to suggest that I have a great deal of faith uh, in their ability to do this uh, when we all have seen how uh, ham-fistedly a program like the TSA uh, has been uh, implemented and how 
ineffective it's been, uh, the, the leaked reports, because, of course, it's too secretive to tell us plainly that they simply suck at doing their job. Uh, but the leaked reports that show us um, that 90 plus percent of bomb making materials and weapons uh, have made it through uh, some of the most important airports in the country uh, through the screening process uh, during the testing phase, not just in general, but the testing phase, testing um testing procedures um that's that's kind of terrifying um that i'm, I'm not sure that's a that's a, a great uh, analog ultimately i mean it's well, it's not I, just some minimum wage i i understand but, know, but at, at the end of the day at the but at the end of the day it's a massive bureaucracy and it is the sort True. of stuff that we saw happening at at airports over the weekend where people are where people who are interpreting the orders that they're getting from the rest of the bureaucracy simply go about it in the wrong way. Where, I would, I would where kids end up being detained for hours and hours and hours. Interject. There, there, there have my, been rumors my, of people I in get handcuffs. All that. I mean, this is an issue. My faith is not in uh, uh, American bureaucracy. I have more faith in the French bureaucracy than the American bureaucracy. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, they're, I, they're I know. Very, Productive, uh, productive uh, uh, public sector. My faith is in American society. The stuff that uh, happens, uh, we are an assimilation machine, not because oh, there's sure. an office that's, of assimilation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I think on the, on the Somali yeah, question, but, which but again, wait, I, I wait, think there's, wait, there's room for a note of caution there, in the sense that there there are some reasons. I mean, every group has its own particular group characteristics, and. Islamic societies have their own characteristics as well, and you can take the example of a, of a very open and pluralistic society like India that has had centuries to really absorb and incorporate its Muslim minority and so far has failed to do so and has terrible Islamic terror problems. But I mean, I, Kevin, I don't think it, it – and and we could we could sit on this for a while, um, and I don't I don't necessarily want to because I I don't know how much progress we'll be able to make in the time allowed to us allotted to us, um, but I don't think I mean there's a there's a generalization there necessarily right um, when we talk about sort of the distinct characteristics of of peoples of people who share a particular faith or who live in a particular area I mean we we are generalizing in some in some pretty in some pretty crude ways. Um, and I mean, you you even acknowledge like the limitations of a policy by which we say, well, look, I mean, there is a problem here. There are there is an an over representation amongst this particular group of folks um, in in terms of the the likelihood that they might participate in terrorist activities. Um, we should be very cautious about that, and therefore, perhaps we shouldn't allow uh, a large minority of them to grow uh, in this country. I mean, that is one way to go about trying to address the problem. Um, it's just it's not as though it isn't without its own potential uh, unintended consequences. And I would just add that there hasn't really been many uh, groups of others who haven't been at some point targeted as unassimilatable in American life. I'd and say in, that's true, too. And in the long run, everyone got assimilated. Yeah, I can't we're, think I can't we're think of right about the Irish. <laughs> I, I mean, the Irish, if we could assimilate the Irish for crying out loud, yeah. if they could become cops in the third generation, uh, that, that's uh, that's kind of a remarkable thing. The Somali, uh, the Somali refugees have been kind of the pig in the python uh, recently. They have been uh, among the largest recent refugees here. So I don't know what the uh, what the total kind of immigration curve is on that. It might be a case in which they are uniquely this time. These ones can't assimilate. It might also be a mix factor with they just came here and they're figuring it out, too. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wanted to, if if I can, um, sort of pivot back to the to the question of 
I wanted to pivot back to the question of the president's uh, authority to do this, whether or not he is uh, constitutionally empowered uh, to get the job done. And there's been a, a pretty robust uh, debate on this issue as well. I feel like we're, we're tagging a lot of uh, Cato scholars, but David Beer um, over at Cato wrote a piece that was uh, widely circulated for the New York Times that he um, sort of made the made the the negative case um, suggesting that the president simply does not have the authority to make um, to 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 institute a sweeping uh, immigration change like this, specifically uh, on the grounds that it is discriminatory. Um, now, this may or may not be um, an argument that will pass constitutional muster. I, for one, find myself like really taken with a lot of these uh, these debates about uh, constitutional interpretation. I find it really interesting and and cool. And for whatever reason, Nerd. there's like a warm, there's a warm, <laughs> fuzzy place in my heart um, that that sort of just lights up when I get involved in these conversations. Um, but I suspect it's probably the same place where like the evangelical apologetics um, stuff, uh, when I was really interested in a lot of that, uh, sort of came from it. And, and there may be sort of a related problem there um, in that, yeah, Constitution, I get it. I know what we intended to do with the document. Um, but the extent to which people can uh, have conflicting interpretations of the document, the extent to which it has in some way, shape, or form perhaps fallen short of the the ideal uh, that was there. I'm, I'm remembering um, F.A. Hayek's uh, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, which you, this is the second time we've mentioned Hayek um, today, or maybe the third or fourth, but at least the second instance. Um, but I remember reading uh, the first book of it uh, in which he talks about like governments obtaining all sorts of power and authority that the people who wrote the Constitution uh, didn't want them to have and obtaining them by constitutional means uh, and just acknowledging the fact that this thing, this device that was supposed to separate powers has kind of been a failure in a lot of important respects. Um, the fact of the matter is that me um, and most of you listening have almost certainly embraced interpretations that you might have embraced the, uh, the sort of other version of for things um, in the Constitution that are just kind of consistent with your biases. Um, and that that alone is perhaps not a sufficiently good standard uh, for determining whether or not the government ought to be doing something. Um, I mean, in the same way that we're all fair weather federalists. Sure. Right? Uh, if, if federalism goes in our way on our issue, then by God, you know, let's legalize all the pot in the gay marriage in California. Yeah. yeah. And if it doesn't, let's go the other way. And, that, to... and, I'm, and I'm not trying to undermine the, 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 the principle of sort of separations of power. I think it's, it's great. I understand what we're trying to do. You, you invest the government with the sort of sweeping abilities that it has. You invest the executive office as, as we sort of began this conversation with the sort of power it does. Then you wind up in a situation where, yeah, you see a guy like Donald Trump, he's potentially going to get elected. And you say, oh, my God, we, we can't actually trust him to run the secret kill list program. That Obama guy, he was nice and he had a good smile and he, and he was cool. And, and I wanted to have some beers with him. One, um, but the Trump guy, I don't know if we can trust him. It's, one thing, I think uh, most of the know. action on this already has happened, not in the, uh, the uh, hoity-toity constitutional realm, but just on basic legal interpretation, drafting, 
and uh, you know equality under the law and rule of law of things. Every time this has been challenged in court, the Trump administration so far has lost, as far as I can tell. Like in in four, five, six courts across the country, it was drafted really terribly. I mean, oh yeah, everyone this is the other thing, I know sure. who is a lawyer who has looked at this and read it and react to it are just like laughing and giggling at how kind of inept uh, it was drafted. So. Um, I think that speaks to where the actual action is going to happen. For me, the bigger picture is not constitution uh, or even executive power, although this is uh, yet another example of of a trend that I think all three of us uh, don't like, which is just kind of aggrandizement of executive power and and the presidentialization of life in America. I think, uh, Kevin, it's you who coined a term that I've uh, cribbed a lot. Uh, the politicization of everything. Uh, you know, uh, we, we can't just have a normal conversation about sports anymore. It's got to be infused with with uh, politics and all of that. But for me, the big, the one big picture uh, that I hold on to and that and that uh, undergirds my um, disquiet about this whole thing is that um, I think that the order and then the what's going to happen uh, in the near future on related items with immigration in this uh, uh, presidency is that we have gone from being the country that on a bipartisan basis for the last 40 years has understood itself to be at the forefront of at least having the conversation about what the world should do in moments of refugee crisis. We've gone from that country, which was the Jimmy Carter, the Ronald Reagan, the George H.W. Bush, the Bill Clinton uh, country, um, to the country of like refugees are going to blow us up, screw the refugees. Uh, and I think that that bodes ill for uh, the kind of world and the America that I value. I talk, I referenced, you know, hanging out with, with, uh, you know, goddamn French people over the weekend. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are hyphenated Americans, green card holders, uh, naturalized citizens, um, uh, over the last uh, 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 few days, and I've heard variations on the same thing from a lot of different people who have a lot of different perspectives uh, on on their own relationship with America, but like a profound sadness at like the America that I was attracted to, that I came to, and that in many ways I've signed up to um, to be part of, even though I hold on to various parts of my own identity. Um, this move of all things. I mean, more than more than droning these people to death, more than the Iraq war in certain ways, something about the tenor of this mood and the direction that it portends um, has filled a lot of people with a kind of new and profound sadness. And it's not necessarily Trump derangement syndrome. It's that probably a lot of that, though. No, it's probably a lot of they have understood and a lot of people have understood America is the place that takes the refugees. And right now, America is not. No. Yes. You think so? You really, really think so? I do. I've known 100 people who have come to America as refugees over the years, probably. I mean, dude, I can't. Care about this? I think it. No, I think but, it matters. They, they, I just don't think they most Americans that, really care. It's, I, I I did not say most Americans. Okay, you're right. I am right. confident that most Americans don't care. Okay, I am confident that my ideas are firmly in the minority. There's yeah. a poll today that 49 percent of Americans think this is great. 41 percent don't. I'm sure the wording of the question matters. Sure. I am confident <laughs> that anyone listening to me talking about the tears of French people in Brooklyn yeah, would yeah. love to see me burn at the stake. But what I'm saying is that those people who did come here and who have this sense this kind of 
first generation sense of America will always be, regardless of how silly America is, it'll always be yeah. that. Yeah. They feel like it is no longer that. And the sadness that they feel is profound. And I feel a lot of that sadness too. Yeah. Yeah. Because two, I two, am a snowflake, Kevin. Two things about <laughs> That's that. That's racist. One, uh, on the narrower point of, of the construction of the executive order, I think either our greatest comfort or our worst fear, I haven't decided which, <laughs> should come from the fact that these people don't really seem to know what they're doing. Yeah, comfort. I, I, I'm going to go with worst fear, but, but the extent to which they don't know what they're doing, again, I, it's, it's that thing where Donald Trump, the uniquely dangerous, uniquely stupid person, um, seeming really bright and having a degree from an Ivy League university does not necessarily mean that you are going to be a much better central Are we planner. saying Wharton is Ivy League no. now? Well, it's it pin typically is, is technically is in the Ivy League. Now, my my other point though, and maybe this is something that's going to be too much for us to get into here. What I assume is going to be close to the end of the podcast, but um, we're never letting you go, Kevin. Yeah. We're never we're letting me go. Uh, you know, the question of what kind of country are we? We're the country that takes the refugees. I think, in some ways, that's that's not entirely true to America's historical experience. We're the country that fights World War II, right? We're the country that lands on the beaches at Normandy. And you have a libertarian view of saying, we don't want to be the world's policemen, as the cliche goes. We don't want to be engaged in military adventurism around the world because there's blowback and it causes us problems. And we don't want to be imperialists and colonialists and all the rest of it. And we libertarians say that expecting that people will embrace this in an idealistic and positive sort of way. But what actually happens is what they hear and what they take away from that, and which is not untrue, I don't think, is that the world is not our problem. And if we're not going to be the country that goes out there and does these things and is active and involved in the world in various ways that libertarians don't like, that your sort of Ron Paul element, your Rand Paul element object to, we're also probably not going to be the country that says, well, we're actually going to deal with all the uh, refugees and all the other troubles that come from these situations that we are pulling away from. If we pull away from one, we're going to pull away from the other. We'll pull away more rapidly and I think robustly from the other because there are so many uh, specific and easily identifiable in-your-face costs associated with it. So if you want to be the country that says we're going to be you know, sort of non-interventionist, we're going to be, you know, less uh, of the kind of you know, Wilsonian George W. Bush country than than we were say, right after 9-11 and, and, and all around that time in the Iraq war. And I want us to be that country. I want us to be less adventurous around the world that way and to have a more circumspect foreign policy. But we're also not going to be the idealistic humanitarian country that says, all right, all you huge Syrian refugees, come on in, the doors are open. Uh, if you want one, you're going to get the other. It's kind of a package deal, I think, as much as some of our more ideological friends and our more idealistic friends wish it weren't. May, mayhaps. I mean, that, that that's possible. I, I, I will say this. I mean, we've, we have, as uh, Matt's article uh, over at Reason, uh, written today, actually, um, very good, you should go read it, um, points out we've seen an explosion in the population of refugees um, around the world. Um, and as, as we sit here now, I mean, the, the number of people who are trying to get out of Syria, who have been displaced, is somewhere between like five and six million uh, in terms of the, the estimates that I've seen. Um, the, the fact is that, I mean, the United States might take in about 10,000 of those. Um, I would say, um, and this is not a matter of me sort of 
instituting or or attributing to the entire country kind of a moral responsibility to do something. Um, but it is almost certainly the case that the United States has had a pretty significant role um, in recent decades of helping to destabilize that region um, and in important ways has helped to precipitate some of the conflicts that have happened and has helped to grow the population of migrants. I'm, I am not saying that it is the United States' fault. This is not blame America first. It's just acknowledging the fact that those interventions have had some pretty shit consequences in some cases uh, because the doing doing things like this for for even noble purposes sometimes doesn't work out the way you expect. Um, so does so, so does not intervening sometimes. This is too. this is true too. I'll take that. I, I'll I will accept it. But it's it's at least it's important to acknowledge as much when we when we close the door. Um, sort of solidly. I was I was actually over at Fox yesterday, um, taping uh, an installment of Red Eye, and someone I think it was is it Chris Kyle, the American sniper dude? Yeah, um, and his wife is over at at Fox News now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, but his wife is at is at Fox News. I believe she is a is a contributor there or something. She was on like the seven o'clock show, um, and she uh, they were doing a segment. It was it was sort of three people talking, but they were all agreeing that you know. Trump is doing the right thing. We got to be safe. We got to protect ourselves. Um, and she said something um, that I thought, I, I think this is the right person, but she said something that is um, just completely inaccurate factually and is like just dangerously wrong, uh, but that I've heard uh, in a number of other places. China, um, Canada has their doors open. We've closed our doors for a little while so we can sort through things, but it's not like anyone is going to die because we're doing this. We just want to make certain that we're safe. Um, that's wrong. That is factually inaccurate. People are dying um, in, in these situations. People are in desperate, desperate situations. People are being radicalized um, in these camps as a consequence of, of us shuttering our doors. Um, at least there is some relationship there that is not suggesting it's the only way it happens, but it's, that's a, it's a part of the story. I mean, it's a, but I would also say that the argument that U S immigration restrictions cause Islamic radicalization is a really good argument for U S immigration restrictions. (laughs) Maybe so. I I, I don't know. We've got, we, 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 we're over the hour mark. I wanted to, Kevin, I wanted to, to maybe get you since I I don't know when I'll talk to you again, maybe we'll, will it be like another two years, but never, I thought we were going to kick him out of uh, the, the libertarian Trump, refugee tent. You you just kicked it into uh, sort of foreign policy a little bit, um, sort of talking about the relationship between um, immigration and, and intervention abroad. Um, certainly the Trump administration, it is, uh, it is a bit of a mystery what their perspective is, or perhaps not. I mean, we're starting to see like the Trump doctrine come into focus, but there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things there. Are you... Are you at all optimistic there? You mentioned some of the places where you are optimistic. Are you optimistic about this sort of uh, nationalist, uh, seemingly non-interventionist, but rhetorically muscular, we're going to spend a bunch of money on the military um, posturing that we're seeing from the Trump administration? Um, and I should add that that, that attack um, that we talked about earlier in the show, uh, where Anwar Alaki's young daughter, who's like eight years old, was killed, um, that was, uh, I guess, Trump's first um, foreign first kill. foreign intervention. It was not a holdover from the Obama administration. So somewhere in the space of the last two and a half odd weeks, he, uh, got, a, he got, a, got a briefing and he said, go for it, guys. Uh, and it didn't turn out particularly well, but at any rate, what, what, what say you, Kevin? Well, I think Trump's goal, his his strategy is going to be to try to spend money at home to make himself popular. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Trump is a guy who has always been sort of socially isolated and has always had a lot of money. And so he uses his money to make himself uh, a more attractive uh, kind of person. I suspect that he takes that over into his presidency. Uh, the fact that he's not very interested in foreign policy and that I think he is kind of risk averse when it comes to that sort of thing gives me some hope that we may spend the next four years not getting into any new major overseas uh, military engagements. The downside of that is if it should come to be the situation that one of those is necessary, uh, he's probably the wrong guy to have in charge of it. So um, – I mean, these things are hard to predict. Uh, You know, other countries have their own motives and their own internal political situations that are often difficult to really understand if you're an outsider. I don't see anything in the world right now that looks like immediate bait for a major American international military conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the Chinese are not wanting anything like that. The Russians aren't wanting anything like that. There's nothing going in Europe that looks like it's going to be something like that for us. I could be totally wrong about this, but I don't see anything that jumps out in my mind, as an obvious source of conflict. That being said, we are engaged in lots and lots and lots of countries, and people don't know. We've got troops in the Congo. We just had a U.S. guy killed in, uh, was it Burkina Faso? We had a soldier killed this Hmm. week, uh, something like that. Um, I'm I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was. It's it's part of our African uh, engagement. You know, so we're in nine, ten countries in Africa now. We're all over the Middle East. Uh, we've got various things going on in the world. These things are always, you know, these are risk-bearing investments, as they say. And um, things can't happen in that part of the world uh, when you've got people and guns and disagreements. Yeah. So there's always that risk out there, but I'm relatively sanguine about our prospects in the short term for now. I mean, the one thing I did see about this uh, this Yemen story, um, and and I suspect that this is the kind of thing that happens all the time, uh, Anwar Alaki's um, I believe the grandfather of the the young lady who was killed like gave his account of what happened. Uh, the Trump administration, um, you know, claimed that a relatively small number of people were killed. Uh, apparently, some women were killed, uh, but those women, of course, were enemy combatants who had guns and were firing at them. Um, the the sort of counter narrative that is emerging. Um, is that something like 50-odd people were killed. 59 people uh, is the highest count that's referenced in, a, in one NBC story um, with uh, the, the grandfather saying that his granddaughter was shot in the neck uh, by a stray bullet at 2.30 in the morning um, and that many other children were also killed. Um, I mean, the, the, the extent to which narratives like this and even a small event like this can have pretty significant ramifications um, can sort of further inflame tensions and make situations worse for us as opposed to better um, is uh, is meaningful. Um, and I, I suspect, you know, I, I don't know that Yemen is not is probably not going to be the site of, uh, of World War Three. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think life yeah, comes I mean, at you fast. It does. If I could correct myself, by the way, it was Yemen. I was thinking of where we had a special forces. Opportunity. Oh, that was Yemen. OK. It yeah. was not. So we're talking about the Africa. same. We're talking about the yeah. same event. I was actually. I. I wasn't sure. Um, I, I wouldn't have been shocked if. Um, if in fact someone did get get killed in Yemen, but we do have people deployed in various parts of Africa. So you were right in that respect, though. Um, well, Kevin, uh, I don't know. You got anything else for us, dude? Um, well, here's my parting thoughts, and it's been coming up. I guess. Um, when I was in college, you had to read a lot of uh, communist theorists because it was, you know, just after the end of the 80s and all the professors were all still Marxists. And, uh, you know, I came across Bukharin and, and the idea of socialism in one country 
And one of the things I've been sort of leaning to, I think, is uh, is libertarianism in one country. Uh, and I think that some of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of immigration is just a way to avoid some of the social tensions, I think, that make it more difficult to get domestic reforms done that I want to. Uh, that's a limited and imperfect way of looking at things, but I think it's the one that's most sensible for now. Got it. Got it. Welch, any, uh, any parting thoughts? Yeah, just a sub-idiot wrote this uh, mm. this week. Uh, uh, goes out to uh, reason commenters. <laughs> 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 and not the ones who are listening, because the ones who got this far are the awesome, they're my best friends. No, they're the greatest they're, heroes of us all. Even if they like Camille better than me, and mm. probably now like Kevin better than me too. That's fine. Mm. I, I have a problem with that. But uh, my God, they have gone so... Like I, I went to, to look at... Uh, my dumb uh, preview post for uh, doing some serious XM radio. And, you know, I said, we're going to be talking about the Trump, uh, you know, executive order. And I said, Hey, there's 67 comments on here. Maybe they were listening to it and reacting to it. Cause we had some good programming. You know, mm -hmm. it was pretty good stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it was just like saying, oh, another Welch woke piece. They're saying <laughs> they're calling me woke. They're calling me an SJW because I don't like that. This is not – come on, people. No, I got it. I got it yesterday well, too. You might as well call me a cuck at this point. This is the reason commenters – listen, libertarian journalists are going to be against presidents. <laughs> Okay. Read the comments. What what I love is I I can simultaneously in the same appearance uh, be a social justice warrior and a Trump apologist. Well, That's great. Which whatever yeah, kind of description? Only in America. Well, Kevin, good to talk to you. Um, people, thank you for uh, for hanging out with us. Uh, we will uh, of course be back next week. Hit us up on uh, on Twitter at We the Fifth. Uh, we are online at www.wethefifth.com. Uh, Kevin is on online at various places. You can find him. He's a very important fellow uh, who writes uh, super interesting and smart things at a, on a routine basis. Including the book, The End is Near, and it's going to be awesome. How going broke will leave America richer, happier, and more secure. And I'm sad that we didn't get a chance to ask you about how that thesis is uh, working out in Trump's America. But that's a <laughs> teaser for uh, next time. I get the feeling there will be an opportunity to discuss that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Gavin. We're done. Thanks, guys. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column.